Last week, we saw Saul was in a, a difficult situation where, on the one hand, the, the Christians that he, uh, that he became, well, wanted to become brothers with, the Jesus, he, after accepting Jesus, we saw that the Christians were afraid to accept Jesus, but we also saw that the Jews wanted to kill him. But we saw that through visions and, and many other ways, God convinced the Christians that Saul was part of the family. And then God used Saul's new family to help him escape the plots of the Jews. And I know Tim read chapter 10, but uh, we actually are still at the very end of chapter 9, and we will be going into 10, but I want to just cover uh, chapter 9, verses 32 to uh, 43 really quick. Uh, Luke, he leaves Saul, and he brings the, the focus back to Peter here. And the reason I want to go through it quick is because we've seen many miracles throughout Acts. We've seen how miracles uh, attest to the, the truthfulness of faith, the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I do want to quickly point out a few things and move on to chapter 10. So in this section, we have two healings in verses 32 to 43. In both of these healings, what I want us to see is that they echo healings that Jesus did in the Gospels. In verses 32 to 35, Peter, he heals a paralyzed man who is bedridden for eight years. And we've also seen in the Gospels that Jesus has done that a couple times. In verses 36 to 43, Peter brings a girl named Tabitha back from the dead and says in verse 40, Tabitha, arise. And she comes back to life. In the Gospels, you guys remember when Jairus' daughter, she died, Jesus also went into a room where she laid, and he said, Talitha kumi, which Mark translates as little girl, arise. So Luke is showing us that Peter is doing some of the same works and miracles that Jesus did, but he's also wanting to show us some differences between what Jesus did and, and what Peter's doing. Jesus healed people by his own power, by his own authority. Peter didn't. Whereas Jesus would simply tell a, a paralytic to take up your bed and rise, or tell a dead girl to simply arise, we see Peter say in verse 34, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Healings are, are signs and evidence to demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel. And that's what we see after both of these miraculous healings in, in these verses. We see that there were witnesses who believed the gospel. Verse 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Verse 42, after the second miracle, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And in this section, chapter 9 ends with Peter staying with Simon the Tanner. Well, what was a tanner? What is a tanner? A tanner is someone who, who made leather out of animal hides. And because the process of removing flesh and, and hair from the animal, it was, it was very smelly. They tend to make the, the tanners live on the outside of the city or on the outside of town, often near a, a body of water. And that's what we see in, uh, in verse 6 in chapter 10, that Peter was at Simon's house, which was by the sea. And that's where Peter is currently at in our narrative. 
Now we have seen in verse 31 last week in chapter 9 that the gospel has gone throughout all of Israel. Verse 31 is an, an important verse to Luke's narrative because he wants us to see that the work of bringing the gospel to Israel has been making progress and in some sense has been fulfilled or completed because there are Christian communities all throughout Israel. And so now we are ready to see the next phase in Luke's account of the early church. The gospel is ready to go to the Gentiles. The Jews, they knew themselves that one day God was going to do a work that is so great that the Gentiles would become believers in Yahweh. Listen to some Old Testament texts that Jews used to meditate on and read about the, uh, concerning the inclusion of the Gentiles. This is Jeremiah 4. And if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. So Jeremiah is prophesying about a time after exile when the nations will worship praise and glorify the Lord of Israel. In chapter 14 of Zechariah, the prophet has been talking about the nations that have been attacking Israel. But listen to what Zechariah says about these nations. He says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. The Gentiles are going to come and join Israel in their worship of Yahweh. And we've already heard this morning from, from Micah, uh, when Tim read the text, uh, another text about the inclusion of the Gentiles. It's all over Isaiah as well. And I want you guys to know these are not throwaway verses. The inclusion of the Gentiles in the Old Testament, these are not throwaway verses. When you think about how God and the religion of a single nation has now spread globally and become the world's number one religion the way it has, these verses should blow your mind. We should be in amazement seeing that God fulfilled and is fulfilling these promises as we speak. So putting it all together, for the Jews... They knew that the prophets all spoke about a day coming after exile when the Gentiles would worship Yahweh. So far in Acts, that hasn't happened yet. The gospel has stayed among the Jews and the proselytes and the Ethiopian eunuch who may be probably a proselyte or a, or a Jew who was scattered. There has not been one God-fearing or non-God-fearing Gentile that's been recorded as coming to faith in Acts yet. And so Luke, in chapter 10, he now introduces us to a Gentile named Cornelius in verses 1 and 2. And we can see from verse 1 that Cornelius was, he was an important man. He tells us that he was a centurion, and he was an officer uh, 
and he was a centurion, uh, sorry, this is the text, verse 1, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So a centurion was an officer in the Roman army, the Roman military. He was responsible to look over and lead 80 men, which is comparable to a, a captain in today's military leading a company. And Luke gives us these descriptions to show us two things. That Cornelius was a Roman citizen and that he was a Gentile. He wants us to know that. He also, we also see in verse 2 that Cornelius was a God-fearer. He says Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now it's worth briefly explaining again the difference between a proselyte and a God-fearer. A proselyte was a Gentile who fully submitted to the Jewish law, to the Jewish religion. He became as Jewish as possible. He underwent circumcision. He followed food laws, followed the Sabbath. A God-fearer was someone who was sympathetic to the Jewish religion. He believed in Yahweh, but he didn't submit to circumcision or food laws or celebrate feasts. So Cornelius was the second one. He was a God-fearer. And Luke mentions that a few times throughout our text. Verse 2 teaches us that Cornelius was a loyal God-fearer. He led his whole household to the Lord. He gave alms, most likely to the Jews, but also probably to the people who served under him in his unit. And it says that he prayed continually. So altogether, Cornelius, he is a Gentile Roman officer that worshiped Yahweh. And in verses 3 to 8, Yahweh sends him a vision of an angel speaking to him. And so what we have here is that this angel, he comes to Yahweh in this vision. And the first thing he does is he expresses God's favor towards Cornelius because he has heard, God has heard Cornelius' prayers. And we see that in verse 4. It says his uh, prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And then without stating much else, the, the angel commanded Cornelius to, to send for Peter in, in verses 5 and 6. He says, And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. And so the centurion, he listens to the angel and he, he calls three men, three of his soldiers uh, together. In verse 7, he, he, one is described as being devout, which I think that means that he's also a God-fearer. And Cornelius, when he calls them together, he relays the message, the angel's message, to the three soldiers. And then we see them head out. Now, if the soldiers, they left Caesarea, that's, that's where they were at, at around the time of the vision... And we know that they make it around noontime in Joppa where Peter's at. That means the soldiers had to make it to Joppa in around 21 hours. Which was very, very difficult, but it was possible. But here's the point in the first section of chapter 10, the first section we just went over. God wants the God-fearing Gentiles to believe the gospel. 
He wants the gospel to go beyond the Jews. Jesus is the culmination of all of God's plans, and God is creating a family that consists of both Jews and Gentiles. And by sending for Peter, we're going to see that God is inviting Cornelius and the other Gentiles into that family. So we've seen that God wants them in the family, but as always, there's a problem. And the problem is, at this point in time, Peter still believed like a typical Jew in the first century. Jews, during this time, stressed the, important, uh, the importance of submitting to circumcision and to obe- uh, observing feasts and food laws. And of course, they, they got this from the Old Testament. If you go to Genesis, God commanded Abraham and all his descendants to be circumcised. If you go to Leviticus and other places, there were restrictions on the kinds of food they can eat. And the Jews in the first century, they saw circumcision and food laws in particular as what marked them out in the Greco-Roman world. And that's what made them distinctly Jewish. If you want to be a Jew, you have to be circumcised and you have to eat kosher. Not long ago, there was a shepherd and he was, he was walking along one day and he, he discovered some, some scrolls, some documents that are now known as the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are many documents and letters that were found from a community of Jewish sectarians. They were called the Qumran community, the Qumran community. And there were many caves that they found there at this community. And in what is known as K4 at the Qumran site, uh, there is a letter known as MMT or 4QMMT to stand for K4. That's the name of the document. Technical, but sorry, listen. <laughs> and this letter is from the leader of the Qumran community, and he calls himself the teacher of righteousness. And he's writing to the high priest in Jerusalem, and he's writing to address the concern that he believes that the Hellenized world and the increasing Roman influence in the world is leading to the effacement of the Jewish identity. And so he says to the high priest, you want to know how you can remain Jewish? You want to know how you can stay marked out in the Greco-Roman world? You want to know how you can celebrate at the end of time? Make sure that people are circumcised, they follow the food laws, and the Sabbath. That will help us, help distinguish us from the Gentiles. That will distinguish us from the nations. And it's also pleasing to God. And these things that they, the the circumcision, the food laws, the Sabbath keeping, it gave Jews a sense of ethnic and, and moral superiority. And this sense of superiority led to disdain for the Gentiles. And you can even see this arrogance and and disdain in our text, but most explicitly, if you go to chapter 11 in Acts, Peter, he goes and he tells the Jews about his story with the Gentiles. And look how the Jews respond to Peter in in, uh, chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. So he goes and he tells them he had a 
encounter with the Gentiles and listen to what they say. The circumcision party criticized Peter saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So the Jews are shocked that Peter would associate and even go as far as to eat with a Gentile. So how do we put that together? We saw that the Jews believed that the Gentiles would come and worship Yahweh, but at the same time, they don't even want to eat with Gentiles. What's going on? Yes, they did believe from places like Zechariah, Jeremiah, Malachi, or Micah, Isaiah. They expected, uh, they believed that they would come and believe and trust in Yahweh and worship Yahweh, but at the very least, they expected that these Gentiles would submit to circumcision and obey food laws. They believed that these Gentiles would have to become Jewish. They believed that they would have to at least become a proselyte to be accepted and be in the covenant. They would have never imagined that an uncircumcised God-fearer could take part in these promises. And this is actually, when you read Galatians, this is one of the major problems in Galatians. Peter is, he's feeling the, the pressure of the circumcision party and he withdraws from eating with the Gentiles because they're uncircumcised. But Paul in Galatians, he, he doesn't think that Peter's teaching a justification by works, but he believed Peter's actions of withdrawing from the Gentiles led the Gentiles to believe that unless they were circumcised and followed food laws, they couldn't be right with God. And that is not in line with the truth of the gospel, according to Paul. I like to shop at Costco and, and Sam's, and for the record, let's state that, uh, that Costco is way better than Sam's is. Amen, yep. But in both places, in order to get into the store, in order to buy groceries, what do you have to have? A membership card, right? Same thing at some gyms uh, for gym membership. If you don't have a card that they can scan, you won't be allowed into the gym. You're not allowed in the club. Circumcision and food laws were the membership cards of the Jewish people. It was their Jewish badges. If you weren't circumcised, if you didn't follow the food laws, you couldn't be in the club. You couldn't be in the covenant. You couldn't be accepted by God. And for Peter, this belief carried over into the New Testament. We can see that Peter had this, this sort of disdain and this belief about the Gentiles, that they were unclean in the first half of verse 28 in our text. He says, when talking to the Gentiles, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Hopefully the, the tension is, is evident. When Cornelius sends his soldiers to go get Peter, we know that Peter is going to naturally resist it. So in this section, we're going to see that God is going to begin to renew Peter's mind. 
Starting in verse 10, God shows Peter a vision of a sheet. And this sheet is, it's descending from heaven and it contains all kinds of animals that the Jewish people weren't allowed to eat. And of course, Peter's disgusted by it. But in this vision, Peter is told to kill and eat the animals that are inside of the blanket. And just as you expect, Peter, he defends himself in verse 14 saying, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Eating unclean food, Peter thought, would would make him unclean. He must not have been paying attention to Jesus in the Gospels when he says it it doesn't matter what goes in your mouth. That's not what defiles a person. It's what comes out of your mouth. But the voice responds to Peter by saying, what God has called clean, don't call unclean. And this happens, the text says, three times to to really drive the point home. What God has called clean, do not call unclean. Peter didn't know exactly what this vision meant. Uh, Verse 17, it says he was inwardly perplexed about it. But at this point, or he, he may grasp the significance that, that God was perhaps declaring all foods clean right here, but he definitely didn't see the greater significance of the vision, which he'll very soon learn. And so while Peter has this vision in an upper room, perhaps he's on top of the roof, or he's on the roof still, while this is going on, downstairs and outside, the soldiers Cornelius sent are standing outside the gate. And the spirit commands Peter to go to them, uh, Peter to go to the soldiers in verses 19 to 20. It says, And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them, accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter listens. He He goes outside and he speaks to the three men, the three soldiers that Cornelius sent. And they explain to Peter why they're there. They explain who Cornelius is. They especially highlight uh, and focus on Cornelius' commitment to Yahweh. And so Peter agrees to go, but because they had arrived so late in the day, he invites them inside to stay the night. And then the next day, they, they head out to Caesarea to meet Cornelius. When we get down to verse 24, the text teaches us that they arrive in Caesarea. Now Peter and Cornelius are face to face. What's Cornelius' response to Peter? Verse 25. He falls down and he worships. There's many reasons he could have done this, maybe from the vision and and this vision, this angel telling him to go get Peter. There's a chance he probably thought that Peter wasn't simply a human, that the person he's going to get is, is, is beyond human. The kind of homage that, uh, that he was giving Peter was certainly pagan. And even though Luke speaks rather positively about Cornelius, he doesn't remove this from the story. He wants us to see all sides. 
And of course, Peter responds by saying that he's only human, and which implies that only God is deserving of, of worship. But as time had passed, and, and maybe at some point along the journey, or when he sees Cornelius, Peter finally understood the deeper meaning of the vision that God gave him. Verse 28, listen to what Peter says. And Peter said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And at this point, everything began to fall in place and to, to click for Peter. What God was telling Peter in the vision with the unclean animals is yes, all foods are clean, but also and even more significant what he's telling Peter is uncircumcised Gentiles are clean as well. Peter was realizing that all these, these Jewish badges of circumcision and food laws and feasts and Sabbath keeping that these Jews wore pridefully, badges that created a barrier between Jew and Gentile, he realized that they were not required to be accepted either by Jews or by God. They're not necessary either for ecclesiology or soteriology. Cornelius, who, who wasn't circumcised, who enjoyed, enjoyed pork, was thought to be clean by Peter. He thought that he could talk to him, speak to him. So Peter, he comes into his house and he gives him the explanation that I can come in because I believe you're clean now. But he's still not entirely sure of why he's, he's there. So again, in in verses 30 to 33, Cornelius tells him himself about the vision that God gave him, pointing out from the vision of God's acceptance of him as a centurion and a Gentile and telling him that he needs to call for Peter. And Peter responds to Cornelius by saying two things. First, he responds by confirming that God doesn't show favoritism to the Jewish people. Instead, God accepts anyone from any nation. Verses 34 and 35. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Second, Peter goes on to, to preach the gospel. Peter tells Cornelius about Jesus being anointed with the Holy Spirit in verse 38. He tells him about the works Jesus did in Israel, focusing on Jesus freeing those that were captive to Satan. He tells Cornelius and the men of Jesus' death and resurrection. He mentions their apostolic duty as witnesses to the resurrection to go and preach about Jesus. And Peter ends by telling Cornelius and the other Gentiles that if they believe in Jesus, they will be forgiven. So what will happen? 
We've been prepared to see that God will accept them because of because he's impartial. And so what happens next is that the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in these uncircumcised men. Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the Holy Spirit falling on them was evident to Peter and the other Jews because the Gentiles were speaking in tongues. When God gives the Holy Spirit to someone, he accepts them. That settles it. We're actually about to do a series on eternal security and the perseverance of the saints, and we're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in that. But when God gives the Holy Spirit to someone, he accepts them. That's it. You have the Spirit that settles it. You're in the family. You're justified. As a matter of fact, the New Testament authors often base their arguments of whether someone has eternal life or not on whether they have the Spirit. Paul in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians says, God has placed this seal on us, the Holy Spirit in our hearts, as a guarantee and deposit of our inheritance to come. And God gave these uncircumcised Gentiles the Spirit. Notice verse 45, how the Jews are, are shocked that God accepted the unclean Gentiles. It says, and the believers from among the circumcised, and he's saying explicitly calling the Jews and proselytes the, the circumcised to contrast it with the Gentiles. And he says, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gifts of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So God accepts them. The Jews are amazed. You don't have to be a proselyte. You don't have to be circumcised to be a part of the family. I have a question for my theologians and scholars out there. Why did you have to be circumcised and follow food laws in the Old Covenant, but not in the New. Why is that? that? That's part of it. Thanks, Phil. Yeah, thank you. To be set apart. That's, uh, that's actually, yeah, that's, uh, that's part of it, definitely. There's a book called Progressive Covenantalism, and, um, and the authors, they argue, that they say that helping us see uh, circumcision in, the, in its ancient Near Eastern context will help us understand God's purpose for circumcision better. So in Egypt, for instance, only the kings and the priests would be circumcised. And they would do this as a sign of their royal and priestly functions, but also as a devotion, out of devotion to their gods. So only kings and priests were circumcised in Egypt. Well, God in Exodus 19, made every male be circumcised in Israel to show the world, to mark them out, that they are a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19.6. 
But even Deuteronomy in chapter 30, this is still in the law. This is still written by Moses. Moses tells the Jews that after they come back from exile, that God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Jeremiah, before they go into exile, says that Israel is uncircumcised in heart. So there's already this hint of what circumcision stood for in the Old Testament and why it truly mattered. Paul picks this theme up of the the uncircumcised heart in many letters, but in Romans 2, if you read Romans 2, if you're familiar with Romans 2, he's been tearing to shreds the fact that the Jews would on the one hand boast in the law, but on the other hand not keep the law. And so he knows exactly what their next argument's going to be. They're not keeping the law. Well, they might say, well, maybe sometimes we are lawbreakers, but at least we're circumcised. Fall back on the circumcision issue. What's, and he responds by telling them what a true Jew is and what true circumcision always has been. He says, for one, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. So true circumcision, Paul argues, is not one that can be seen on the outside. True circumcision is through the Spirit by creating a heart that is receptive to God. That's what circumcision always pointed to. To put it simply, there's been a salvation historical shift. Circumcision was for the nation of Israel to mark them out in the world as a kingdom of priests to God. But it was simply a shadow or symbol of what God would do through his spirit to the human heart in the new covenant. All the Old Testament prophets, Moses, they all prophesied about the true circumcision of the Spirit of God that's to come. And for Paul, the age of the law and the shadow of physical circumcision had passed. And the reality, the substance of heart circumcision and the age of the Spirit has come in the new covenant. And that's why we don't have to be circumcised today. And the Gentiles in our text, Cornelius, when they believed, they were circumcised. But not the outward physical circumcision. They were circumcised in the heart by the Spirit of God. What circumcision always pointed to. We have a couple things we can learn from our text. We can see the dangers that can come from having a lot of pride in a nation. The Jews had such a pride for the nation of Israel that they considered people from other nations as dogs and unclean. Here in America, we have a a lot to be thankful for here. But if we somehow think that, that God loves and cares for, has a special place in his heart for American Christians, more so 
than Christians in Ethiopia or China or Korea, then we haven't seen the impartiality of God and that he doesn't show favoritism to a people group or a nation. He doesn't care about your ethnicity or your nationality. Do you have a circumcised heart and follow him? Something else we can learn about is to not use our religious badges to, to think that that makes us accepted to God or to have pride over other people. There are some people that take pride in, in baptism today. And, and often for many people who, who claim that they're Christian, if you ask them if they're saved, they'll often point to their baptism. But just as circumcision, it didn't do anything to make one more acceptable to God, our baptism doesn't either. If you're here today, and you're listening, or you're listening in, but you're not yet a Christian, know that God can and will forgive you today. You don't have to submit to the sort of what we might call the, the New Testament circumcision. You don't have to submit to the baptism and, and communion to be accepted. And that's because our acceptance with God, and it never has been even in the Old Testament, been based on our performance of religious ordinances or rituals. We are accepted solely and only on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ in his representative life, in his death on the cross, which takes the punishment that we deserve for our sins on himself. If you can repent and believe that, believe that Jesus died for your sins and that you don't have to move an inch to the right or to the left to be accepted by God, you can be forgiven today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are impartial. Thank you that your kingdom is a worldwide kingdom that, that goes beyond, that is not located in any one nation. It goes beyond all nations for a worldwide kingdom. We eagerly await for the day that you will return as king to this earth and rule everyone over everybody physically on the earth when heaven and earth is united. We pray that you would help us see this more deeply and more clearly throughout the week, and we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.